Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Now I can hear me. Very good. Man, I'm so glad you're here this morning. And so very glad to be turning our attention back to Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 25. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. Acts 12, 1 to 25. Uh, this week we're going to look at this passage next week uh, in preparation for the membership class that will be beginning on September the 11th. Uh, we're going to be reminded, as we do, about every six months or so, uh, who we are as a church. So we'll be looking at KDSC, be reminded of our our mission as a fellowship, what we're here for, what our DNA is, and how that works itself out in our values and our practices. And so it'll be really neat if you're a visitor and you haven't heard that before, be really neat. Next week, I promise you, you'll be looking at the Bible. We're not just going to be blindly looking at a mission statement. The mission statement of our church comes from the text of Scripture. And so we'll be exegeting multiple passages of Scripture next week. And so uh encourage you to come and hear that. And for those of you going through the membership class, uh, you'll be set up and ready to go. And for those of you who are interested in that, see Pastor Jonathan and get you set up. Two campuses, one church. There'll be people from the other campus here next week for a membership class or for that Sunday when we start. So it's going to be really neat. Excited about that. But today, Acts 12, 1 to 25. So if you don't mind, I'm going to pray and we're going to get after the text. You ready? Let's do it. Father, thank you for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. What I pray today, that Holy Spirit will take the word and that he will be counselor, helper, teacher, and guide into truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak the truth of the text into the heart of every person and beyond into every sector of their soul. Holy Spirit, meet every single need this morning that your word would address. That we may be grown into the head who is Christ grown up in Him, rooted and grounded in Christ. And may every joint and ligament supply today because you equip the church for works of ministry. Would you pull that off today, Lord Jesus? Encourage your people, build the kingdom, and may your kingdom come and your will be done in this place today as it's done in the heavens, that your name may be great. We pray in Jesus' name. Acts 12, 1 to 25. Uh, From between a rock and a hard place to the advance of the kingdom. From between a rock and a hard place to the advance of the kingdom. Chapter 12 in the book of Acts uh, serves as a transition from the growing and expanding kingdom as it came from the Jewish people and the church in Jerusalem and then exploded in power to the Gentiles. So in chapter 12, in this transition, Luke is going to give us an account of Peter's rescue from between that rock and a hard place, that is prison and Herod who put him there, and then the death of Herod. This chapter serves the end of helping us to remember that God loves and cares for His church in Jerusalem just as He does His elect bride from all nations, and that His people, Jew and Gentile alike, are a people who are of dependence on Him, and as a result have the power of His kingdom at work in and through them in every circumstance. So let's take a look at this text, and let's be encouraged to action today in our thinking and in our acting from this text. Acts 12, 1 to 25. I'm not going to read all 25 verses at the beginning. We will plow through them as we walk through our observations of the text. Okay? You good with that? So here we go. Observation number one. What do we see and what does it mean? Number one. Jesus cares for His church. And that is those who have been brought in and those who are yet to be brought in. This is a functional purpose of this chapter. And I say, you take that observation, you say, where did you come at that from the text? That is the function of chapter 12. Remember he said it's a transition 
between the work of the gospel beginning with the Jews and the church at Jerusalem and then exploding in Acts 1-8 fashion as Jesus said it would from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Acts 12 is that transition from the work in the church at Jerusalem and now the explosion of the kingdom of God on the frontiers of the Great Commission. And so functionally, Luke gives us chapter 12 to help us see that Jesus cares for His church, whether it be Jew, Gentile, slave, free. He loves them all. He loves His church. You see, John 10 helps us to see something very, very important. So if you want to look with me, uh, just kind of hold your finger uh, in the book of Acts chapter 12 and look back at John 10, 22 to 30. I'm not going to take a ton of time here. Just want you to see something super important in this passage. Jesus has been teaching in John 10 that he's the shepherd, the shepherd, the good shepherd. And we learn something very important here in this passage. That Jesus has come to secure a people. And that in His death, burial, and resurrection, He is going to purchase and secure all the people, as we read in John 10, 22-30, that the Father has given to Him. Now this is vital for you to understand why Jesus loves His church. We read here in this passage, I'm not going to read all of it, but just skip down to verse 28. Jesus says that His people... Those who the Father, he's going to say, has given him are his sheep and they hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, that lets us know something precious about the church. The church isn't an organization. The church is the gift from the Father to the Son. A redeemed humanity is what the Father has given the Son. And Jesus goes to the cross to secure all those the Father has given Him so that nothing can snatch Him out of the Father's hand. So His death, burial, and resurrection is radically effective at taking those the Father has given Him from all nations, bringing them into His kingdom, and nothing is able to rob them from Him. That's who we are in Christ. That's what the church is. Is the gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus loves His church. And so Luke gives us this passage here in Acts 12 to help us not forget... That because we're moving in the Acts 1-8 direction of all nations, God doesn't love the church at Jerusalem any less because you're not going to hear from them much anymore. You're not going to hear from Peter much anymore. Paul is now going to become a central figure in the story. The pioneering work of the gospel is going to become a central piece of the book. But he does not want you to forget the fact that Jesus loves all of his church. So this is important. We live on a timeline because we dwell in time and space. But what we have to remember is God doesn't operate on timeline. You blow your mind for your little theology. You ready? This is one of my favorite chapters when I taught systematic theology. Is the nature and character of God. His eternity. You were created in time and space. So therefore you are time stamped. God carries no time stamp. There was no born on. There's no dead on. He is eternal in His nature. You're not eternal. You have a beginning. He has no beginning. So we think in terms of sequence in time. God doesn't. Time is a product of His creation. God is not subject to time. So we have a tendency to read the book of Acts and we move through sequentially in time and we forget what we just passed. Right? But God, being a God rich in mercy, gives us chapters like chapter 12 so that we don't forget what He has done. Because we have a tendency to think if it's in the past, it's no longer any good. That's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. If it's old, it's no good. That's not true. God is eternal, and He's still very good. Right, So just because it's old or out of mind doesn't mean it's less. So Luke gives us chapter 12 to remind us Jesus loves all of His church. Why? Because the church is a gift from the Father to the Son. And He died to secure those people from all nations. 
So lest we forget that Jesus loves all his church, Luke recounts for us this scenario in chapter 12 in which we see Jesus' great love for his church that is mostly comprised of Jews up to this point. We're going to see his love for Peter and his love for the Gentiles. We're going to see the love that the Gentile church has for this Jewish community because at the end of the chapter, we're not spending a lot of time on this, Paul and Barnabas delivered the gifts of resources financially to the church in Jerusalem who's undergoing famine. The Gentiles hadn't forgotten them. And neither should we because God loves His church. Luke simply doesn't want us to forget that Jesus loves all of His church. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, American, Indonesian, Chinese, South American. Jesus loves His church. So that's the functional purpose of chapter 12. So before we delve into some details, let's ask the question, what do we do with the functional purpose of chapter 12 that Jesus loves His church? We're not supposed to forget that. Well, number one, what do we do with this? How do we apply it? Remember, remember that Jesus loves His church, all of it, regardless of who seems to be in the spotlight presently. I... And one who will constantly bring up to you the pioneering work of the gospel because that's what I am. I'm an apostolically gifted church planting M who loves to go where the gospel's never been and meet people who've never heard and tell them. That's what makes me happiest in my work. I get frustrated with us who think we know and know nothing. Who are lazy and Slack and prosperous, have plenty but lack spiritually. We, we think, we think because we have plenty physically that we have something to give to the world and the reality is those persecuted believers in the East have so much to teach us that you can't love God and money. Right? And so, I like to talk about the pioneering work of the gospel. But we must not forget, we must remember that Jesus loves us too. And He isn't done with some of us lazy, idol-worshipping people that He has purchased. And He will root those things out because He loves us. Because He died to secure us. He has awakened us to life through the preaching of the gospel. Brought us to Himself. And He intends to finish what He started. Jesus loves His church. We learn about this in Ephesians 5, 22-33. If you've ever attended a wedding that we, uh, one of the three of His pastors uh, performs, or performs is not the right word, officiates is a more proper term. Um, you will hear this passage, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, where we learn in this passage that marriage is a physical reminder and is here for the purpose of revealing Jesus' love for His church. Which is why marriage is important. Not because it's ultimately important, it's because it is a living picture of Jesus' love of His church. And so therefore, the marriage relationship is to reflect what it was created to reflect, and that is Jesus loves His bride. He will feed and cherish His bride. He will take care of His bride. He will clean up His bride. He intends to because it's His. And so Jesus loves His church. If Jesus then is committed to His church, Three Rivers, how much more are those who are members of it to care for it. You see the application? If Jesus loves His church, how much more us who are members of it? Right? No one ever hates themselves and they have a serious problem. Like we have things we have to deal with. If we hate ourselves to the point of abusing ourselves, there are things we need to wrestle with. And that's a serious challenge. And we need to wrestle with those and work to heal those and make those right. But typically, we don't hate ourselves. Right? We feed and nourish and clean. Why? Because it's kind of important. Right? If Jesus loves His church, how much more those who are members of it? Tracking? If Jesus cares for His church, so should we. We're to love the church as Jesus does and in every way described in Ephesians 5, 22-33. We're also to love... Not just the local body, which I would, my argument for this point here is that that's us, the local body. You should love one another. 
You should be committed to one another. Right? If that's the case, we're also to love the universal body of Christ and enjoy our orthodox distinctions as we minister to one another and love each other, even if not in covenant membership. Loving one another does not exclude proper critique of propositional distinctions and meeting separately over legitimate distinctions. I want you to hear this for a second because we're kind of in a day, an age, in which unity is thought to be acceptance of everything as equal and legitimately true. That's not a proper understanding of unity. We can love one another, and notice I, I, I phrased that on purpose. Notes, MitchJolly.com. You can follow along. You look on the blog. It's right there for you to see. We can enjoy and love our orthodox distinctions as we minister to one another. Loving one another does not exclude proper critique of propositional distinctions and our meeting separately over legitimate distinctions. Listen, there are good gospel-loving people in our town who preach the gospel and do gospel ministry that we don't need to be meeting together because we have legitimate propositional differences between us of which I'm willing to die on some hills over. Right? Because I think the manual's at stake. They do too. But we have those baseline foundational things we can work together on. And we agree to disagree on some things. That doesn't mean we don't love each other. And it doesn't mean that we aren't unified in Christ. It means there are some things very important. It also means that the things that are most important we agree on. And so we'll work together on them. But when it comes to worshiping together and submitting to leadership on not so much. That's not a lack of love or a lack of unity. It seems like in our day that it's considered if you challenge a propositional distinction that you don't love or care about unity. When in fact, it's essential to the upholding of the gospel that we challenge one another on some of those distinctions. It's still love. I'll give you an illustration of how we should love the universal body of Christ. Okay, I have some very, very dear Church of God friends who speak prophetically over me things that are true. And the only way they could know it is Holy Spirit told them. And He sent them to me as an encouragement. Now that freaks some of us Baptist people out, doesn't it? Because I, whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, time out. Time out. A little too supernatural for me. God doesn't work like that. He's cold, heartless. God wouldn't do that. Yes, He does. Now we don't see eye to eye on some things because they're wrong. However, I'm not going to reject the prophetic gift of encouragement. Why? Because I know they read the Word. I know they talk to the Lord. And when Holy Spirit gives them something for me, I'm going to receive it. That doesn't mean we don't love. And that doesn't mean we're not in unity. It just means there's some things that we can't agree on, but the major things we do, and it's okay. So we can love and enjoy one another because Jesus loves and enjoys His people. Does that make sense? And so we can love one another, and we can work together. I have some very dear Presbyterian friends who I work closely with, but they're just wrong on infant baptism. They need to get right. So we can love and enjoy our distinctions and have good, hearty, good-hearted debates. Debating isn't evil. Disagreeing isn't evil. As a matter of fact, I would argue if you love people, you will disagree with them and you will do it in a loving fashion. Jesus loves His church. We should love His church. Locally, covenanted together, those we're not covenanted with, and have those base foundational, Bible-saturated doctrines in common, we can love even though we're distinct. Because, why? Jesus loves His church. Why do we love each other? Because Jesus loves His church. Make sense? Love the church because Jesus does. Which, this isn't in your notes. Listen, be committed to the body of Christ. Listen, this is the worldview. Ready? The reason Christians do what they do isn't because it works. Most of the kingdom of God is not efficient. Efficiency is not evil. But it's not a value in God's timetable. Why? Because God doesn't dwell in time and space. 
We do. So it's easy to assume that efficiency is something God loves. I don't know about you, but Joseph in Genesis is not an efficient way to feed people in a famine. Right? Lord, just call forth rain. Make the grain grow. They'll reap it and eat. Why send Joseph to Egypt? With his foolish brothers as means. Why put him in prison? Why have two cellmates forget he was there? Why have his slave owner's wife go crazy on him? Why deliver him from that? Why do all that? That's not efficient, is it? I think of better ways. That's not God's way. Because God values something greater. And that is, that is that we would know Him. And sometimes knowing Him is just not efficient. Right? So we do what we do because it emanates from the nature and character of God as the baseline of our reasoning. Right? Where do we find that? The manual. It teaches us the nature and character of God. And that is the basis of us doing what we do. So we love the church, not because the church is lovable or efficient. We love the church because Jesus does. How much does He love the church? Walk over to the cross and take a look up on it. Right? So church, Luke doesn't want us to forget that Jesus loves His church. Well, what's the second observation we see in this text? Number two, we see Peter is between a rock and a hard place. And all Peter has is King Jesus. Check this out. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, this is Herod Agrippa. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And he is the nephew of Herod Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist. Okay? Keep in mind about the Herods. The Herods are descendants of Esau. And Esau is Jacob's brother. Think they got a little rivalry? Yeah, a little bit. Something about selling your birthright. The whole thing, right? Jacob kind of coming to head when he was the second. Little problem. The Herods are descendants of Esau. And in order to keep their power under the Roman government, they'll sell out anybody they need to sell out and do whatever they need to do to make sure they're in favor with the dominant group. The church has begun to be influential. The Jews are pressuring Herod. Hey, if you really are part of us, I mean, no kind of Esau's last now, but if you really are part of us, you need to help us out a little bit. A little background on Herod. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. That's 16. That's four for each watch of the night. Okay? And they were there to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter is between a rock and a hard place. What we read later on here in the passage is that Peter's sleeping between two, chained to them, and there's two at the door. The reason is, you look back to Acts 5, Peter's a little slippery because the Lord's already delivered him out of prison once. So Herod's like, "Mm, let's try this again. Let's put you chained to two and put two at the door. Right? Peter's between a rock and a hard place. What's interesting about this passage is Genesis 32. Now, what in the world does Genesis 32 have to do with this passage? A little bit of everything. There's this guy named Jacob. And I owe this exposition to Jeff Martin from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. He and I preached together last weekend at Snowbird at Iron on Iron, and Jeff blessed my soul with his exposition of Genesis 32, and I put this here in the notes. I'm not lying by telling you this is mine. I'm borrowing this from Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. 
There's this guy named Jacob. And he has stolen his brother's birthright. His brother wants to kill him. And so he went away for a while. And so for 20 years, he has served his father-in-law now, who slipped him a Mickey in the night, married the wrong woman. I'm still trying to figure out how you didn't know that, right? Are you, is your eyesight that bad or was it that dark? I'm like, I don't know. So, so in order to get the woman he wanted, he served more years. Begins to work his way out of the situation. So on one side, he's got his slave father-in-law. And on the other, he's got his brother that wants to kill him. And he comes to this place on his journey away from the slave owner. Headed back to the one that wants to kill him. And we get this account in Genesis 32 of Jacob wrestling with God. And we read the passage and it tells us that Jacob prevailed. He prevailed. Now, don't misunderstand. Jacob didn't beat God. What we learn in this text is that when Jacob prevailed, it doesn't mean he beat God in a wrestling match. It means that he was blessed in having God as his dependency who could and would cause his father-in-law not to catch and enslave him, and to give him favor with Esau, his brother, who wanted to kill him. Jacob was between a rock, Laban, and a hard place, Esau. And there, in that wrestling match, he found Jesus to be enough. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. What did he mean? You see, Jacob couldn't deliver himself. Jacob was stuck. So he found that it was better to wrestle with God than it was to fall into the hands of men. Jacob found that his deliverance was not in the covenant he made with his cheating father-in-law or the droves of cattle he sent ahead as presents to appease Esau. But his deliverance is in being with Jesus who may give him a limp but will take care of him regardless of what Laban or Esau does. Peter finds himself in a similar moment. A very Jacob-like moment. He's got airtight guards in prison on one side, and he's got Herod's intentions to bring him out to the people to appease the people on the other. All Peter has is Jesus at this point. And as you might say down the crack, them's pretty good odds. You see, Jesus doesn't have to release Peter to be a blessing to him. We read a story in the Gospels about Jesus and John the Baptist. John has been the forerunner of Jesus. He's preached. He's been faithful. He's obeyed the Lord. Taken no comfort to himself. And of all the people, who should Jesus deliver, right? John the Baptist. And heck, he's his own relative, right? But John's stuck in prison because he spoke the truth to this moron whose nephew has now got Peter locked up. And John starts to doubt. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him just to make sure, are you the one? And you remember Jesus' response? You go tell John. What you see and hear. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. But make sure you tell him this. Blessed is the one who does not take offense because of me. You see, Jesus wasn't going to get John out of prison. Jesus was going to leave him there to die. Jesus says to John through his disciples, Make sure he knows blessed is the one who isn't offended because of me. John, I'm not going to get you out today. I'm not going to deliver you. I'm going to let you die. And then Jesus goes on to say, Who did you come out to see? You come out to see this prophet? I tell you, there's none greater than him. But Jesus chose not to deliver him. See, Jesus chose not to deliver John the Baptist, but told him he would be blessed if he's not offended by the decision to heal some and leave him in prison. What we see in this passage is, Peter has resigned himself to this moment and he's just sleeping and resting because he's between a rock and a hard place. He may not get out. He may get out. He doesn't know. Peter's just in a place where Jesus is all he's got between a rock and a hard place. Listen, Three Rivers. 
between a rock and a hard place in the kingdom is not a bad place to be. It's a pretty darn good place to be. Because what we find in that Genesis passage and what we're about to see here is that Jesus is powerful. And if He delivers you, fine. If not, you get to go home. But either way, Peter is not in a bad place. One of the things we see in this passage here is Peter's in a rock and a hard place is that prayer is a powerful tool. We see in verse 5, Peter's in a difficult spot. So what happens? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Prayer is the most tangible evidence that these followers of Jesus trust God. Listen, when you're in a rock and a hard place, Jesus doesn't say protest. He doesn't say raise a stink. He says to us from the pages of Scripture, trust me. Trust me. How did the church find a way to show they trusted Jesus? Were they holding protest signs outside the prison cell? Were they going to Herod to plead on Peter's behalf? Earnest prayer was made. Prayer is this tangible evidence that in a, in a rock and a hard place situation, we trust you. They didn't devise a rescue plan. These disciples prayed. We find here prayer is the most tangible evidence that we trust God. We find here in this passage, verse 6 to 19, that Jesus chooses to display his power in rescuing Peter. So that he may preach another day. Listen to how Jesus pulls this off. Between a rock and a hard place. By the way. Jesus rescues Jacob. He gives him favor with his brother. Gives him favor with his father-in-law. Sets him on his mission. Look at how the Lord rescued Peter. He doesn't have to rescue to show you he loves you. That's, keep that in mind. That's why I told you about John the Baptist. Rescue is not evidence that Jesus loves you. You understand that? Leaving you in your spot is also evidence Jesus loves you. Jesus loves His church. But we see here that when we're between a rock and a hard place, prayer is how we show we trust God. And when God delivers, we see some pretty cool things. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door Boy, I read that messed up, didn't I? I totally ignored commas and all kinds of good things. Bad teacher. Let's start over. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, comma, on that very night, comma, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. By the way, this word struck is the same word he will use later in the chapter when he strikes Herod. Same word. When Jesus strikes his servants, it's completely different than when he strikes his enemies. Peter's faithful. They're praying for him. He strikes him on the side. Wake him up. Struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. That's pretty cool, huh? And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, or he went out and followed him, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and second guard, they're passing guards. Crazy. Passing guards. They came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. Of its own accord is actually one word. It's automatos. So we get our word automatic. They come to the locked gate and it automatically, he just, the angel, angels can use the force. <laughs> awesome. I have in my mind because it's so saturated growing up as a kid. Like y'all new people don't know real Star Wars. Y'all watch these crazy fringe things like the cartoons. They ain't real. But not that the other stuff is real, but you know what I mean, right? And so, use the force, right? And it's awesome. As a kid, you like the Jedi. I still, as a grown man, walk to automatic doors and nobody's looking. I go, like that. And it's like, boom, I got it, right? So, but that really, the angels use the force. Not really, but they have the power of God. It's not the force. Force is Buddhist, but you know what I'm saying. So anyway, they walk to the iron gate and it automatically opens. That's cool. 
The Lord at work for his people, choosing to rescue Peter, though he doesn't have to rescue him to show he loves him. But it opened of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Jesus chooses to display his power in rescuing Peter, that he might preach another day. So what do we do with this? How do we apply verse 1 through verse 11? Understand that sometimes Jesus may put you between a rock and a hard place to teach you to trust Him and find Him to be enough. I don't have time to preach Luke 17, but Luke 17 rocked my world this week in my Bible reading. Dawned on me in some amazing ways. The key to increased faith is not Jesus giving you more faith. If you're in Christ, He has awakened you to life, given you the precious gift of faith that you may repent and believe. The disciples came to Jesus and said, "Give increase our faith. And did Jesus like wrinkle his nose and like boom, put his hands up and boom, miraculously they have more faith? No. Jesus responded by saying, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will speak to this mountain and tell it to be cast in the sea and you'll uproot it and make it go in the sea. And then he goes on to give them some ways they are to practice the faith they have. The key to increase faith is not Jesus giving you more faith. Rather, it's exercising the gift of faith He has already given you. Sometimes Jesus will stick you between a rock and a hard place so that you will have to simply do what He's taught you. We, as fallen, frail people, have a tendency to just simply not do what Jesus said. And I love the example in the text is they didn't go off their own efficient strategy. They prayed. As naturalists, we don't like prayer. The reason we don't like prayer is because prayer doesn't feel efficient or effective. But what did the church do? They prayed. What did Jesus do? Respond to their prayer and open gates with the force. Made shackles fall off. Somehow they got by the guards and guards didn't see them. Sometimes Jesus may put you between a rock and a hard place to teach you to trust Him and to trust that He's enough. And that won't be by Him giving you more faith. It will be you exercising the faith He's given you that will increase your faith. And the only way that will happen is when you incur rocks and hard places. See, rocks and hard places are some of God's greatest tools to grow us in the kingdom. And that's what He did with Peter. Second thing we can do with this passage is understand that prayer is never the last resort, but it's the first. It's the second, it's the middle, and it's the end resort. And it's the most glorious option that we have. And it is powerful and it is effective. I put two passages here, and I'll quickly run out of time. But James 4, 1 to 3, he told them, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it, isn't it this, that your passion, passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Often prayer malfunctions in our mouth because we are looking for more for us rather than the kingdom. When Jesus taught us to pray, asking for food came third on the list. Make your name great. Kingdom come, will done. We start with food. Jesus, when He taught them to pray, didn't start with our needs. He started with His great name, His kingdom, and His purposes being accomplished. By the way, that prayer Jesus taught is the model off of which we should pray. That's why when they said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, okay, here you go. Luke 11, 1-3. His disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray as John's disciples taught them. Jesus goes on in that passage to say, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Listen, when you're in a rock and a hard place, don't deliver yourself. 
ask the king of the universe first. Mueller said, if you ever, ever, ever want to grow, you must resolve to never deliver yourself. Trust the Lord. Pray. Seek His face. Do what He says to do. They gloriously resorted to prayer. And then the third observation we can explore the third application we can expect the power of god to accompany our prayer and obedience and we don't have to doubt it but understand it's up to the lord to deliver or not based on his good purpose but we can trust him and trust that his way is always better and that it is supernatural I think some of the reason we don't see the supernatural like we like to see when we read passages like this in Acts, we go, geez, that doesn't happen so much here. It's because, folks, we just don't pray. Let's just be honest. The majority of Christians in the West statistically don't even read their Bibles. And if we're not even reading the manual, are we really praying? No, we don't pray. Prayer is what happens when we get in, like, just way beyond, Right? They, they started with prayer, went with prayer in the middle, ended with prayer, asked, see, not, right? Expect the power of God to accompany your prayer and obedience. He will do those things. Either way, supernatural faith or supernatural release, both are powerful and they're the results of prayer. I need to hurry up real quick. Number three, observation. Jesus draws a line in the sand with one of the church's persecutors. Jesus draws a line in the sand. This Herod, who did all this stuff, I'm skipping some passages because I'm trying to, I want to get, want to get finished and not keep you here until um, three o'clock. Verse 20. Now when Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered the oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. You know, what's interesting about this passage here is this isn't unique to Luke. This account is also written by Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian who was not a Christian. Just an FYI. And he records this account of Herod's death. Slightly different by Josephus, but the accounts are complementary. This is a quote for you in the notes. The fact that Luke mentioned an angel of the Lord does not mean that it was necessarily a quick and obviously supernatural death, but rather that God was ultimately responsible for what may have looked like a natural death. Luke's description of Herod as being eaten by worms is probably directly related to the abdominal pains referred to in Josephus' account. Either way, Herod died this death. And the reason he died is because he received worship from men and did not give glory to God. You see, we've already stated the fact that Herod and this whole line of Herods were so self-seeking. They were all about themselves. Do whatever they'd have to do. They'd sell their mama to make a dollar. And Jesus draws a line in the sand and he ends it for one of the church's persecutors. There is one God and it's not Herod. And at that moment of taking glory to himself in God's good economy, Herod crossed the line and God ended it for him. How do we apply this? Some things you need to understand. Number one, God will not share his glory with another. Number two, we don't pray for the destruction of the authority God places over us. In fact, we pray for them, 1 Timothy 2, 1-3. But we understand that as Jesus put them there, He has the sovereign power to remove them. Third, we rest in God's government of the universe, that He will govern it for His glory and for our good. Always. Always. In this instance, God deemed, it's time for you to go, Herod. Done. But what we recognize in this is that God governs all things well. Sometimes He takes out His enemies. Sometimes He preserves them. 
But what we rest in here is that God is in charge of all things. The church recognized the work of God in play. And they were rescued from one of their enemies. At other times, we're called to pray for them and their salvation. But what we can rest in is that God is at work. And He's at work for our good and for His glory. Fourth and finally, Jesus multiplies His word and His workers. Verse 24 and 25, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. They had taken the gift from the Gentiles to the Jews, and they brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. Jesus multiplies His word and His workers. We see in this passage that in spite of Herod, the kingdom grew, the word of God increased and ran forward and did its work. Why? Because the gospel is powerful. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The kingdom is powerful. The kingdom is supernatural. And so the word of God increased. Listen, Three Rivers Church, understand this. Be encouraged. The kingdom will come and His purposes will be done on this earth as it is done in heaven. Our job is not to make that happen, but to hear Him and obey Him. Preach the gospel, trust Him, pray at all times, seeking the Lord, and He will do this kind of supernatural work. Because the gospel is powerful. The Word of God increases and multiplies. So be encouraged. Stay on the gospel. Stay on the work of the gospel. Stay on the work of the kingdom. God can make it increase. Notice here, they brought with them John Mark. Now, as we go into Acts 13 in a couple of weeks, we're going to see they had a little bit of trouble with John Mark. But thus is the case with making disciples. Because what we find out about John Mark is, he's the author of this little book. Familiar with it? You know what book he wrote? Matthew, Mark. That's, That's this guy, verse 25. And what we're going to read in 13 is he kind of flakes out. He kind of met, he, mm, they're going on the first missionary journey and he's like, hey, I don't know about this. People are scary and he goes home. We read later in Timothy, Paul says, bring John Mark with you. He's useful to me for ministry. And he's the author of the book of Mark. Making disciples will always multiply, multiply effect. You never know who the next John Mark will be. So be patient as you disciple people. Recognize the disciples are going to drop the ball. They're going to mess up. And we're going to help them believe the gospel. Walk faithful to the Lord Jesus. Stay in His Word. Because you never ever know who that next John Mark is going to be. You never know who that faithful person is going to be with the gospel. And you made it happen. One of my favorite stories that George Mueller tells he was recovering from a sickness at an inn on the coast. And while he was there, he met a fellow minister of the gospel who was passing through, who taught him the doctrines of grace. If you don't know what those are, those are beautiful things. You can Google them. I don't have time. We're good reformed people around here and it's beautiful. Mueller stated he hated them and he called them devilish doctrines. But as he studied his Bible... Believed it. He succumbed to the grace of God and the Scriptures. And he leaned his whole life and ministry on those glorious doctrines of grace that shaped the totality of his ministry. If you know the life of George Mueller, you know. In his life, he cared for over 10,000 orphans as a means to show his church that God is faithful and answers prayer. And he did so only with prayer. And you know what? Mueller never tells the name of that pastor. He's unnamed. (laughs) But that unnamed follower of Jesus is responsible for George Mueller, who you do know. We know John Mark because they didn't cast him off. So followers of Jesus, disciple, make disciples. Men, I ask you this often, who are your men? Who are your men? Who are you discipling? If you're discipling no one, you need to repent and begin making disciples because that's the command. Is it not? Go. Make disciples, right? From the mouth of Jesus. Women, who are your women? Because you never know 
who that next John Mark is. You never know who that next George Mueller is. But what we discover is that making disciples always multiplies effect. It's how the kingdom works. It's how the kingdom works. Multiplication. Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. All this we get in chapter 12. Because what we're going to see is Paul is going to build his life around making disciples. Example, John Mark. Example, Barnabas. And those ministries are going to flourish and bloom and grow because God intends to be worshipped among all nations. And the gospel is powerful. Jesus loves his church. And he will pour out his power on his church and through his church as we do what he said to do. And you know what we do in response to that? We worship. Psalm 147 once says, Praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant the song of praise is fitting. It is only right that the people of God worship the king of the universe. Because that's what he deserves. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to sing together. Don't be outsung. You understand? Jesus is worthy of the fruit of lips that bless his name. Bring that to him as a sacrifice today. Father, we pray that for your glory and our joy, you would... You would do in this time everything you set out to accomplish as you brought folks here today. No one's here by accident. You don't make mistakes. You never fumble. You never throw incomplete passes. You never miss a receiver. You always, always accomplish your good purposes. And so we trust that there's no one here accidentally today. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would accomplish all for which you brought them here today. I pray you'd bring from this gather people, the fruit of lips that praise your name. Worship. May the worship of song come forth from your people today. Lord, I pray for those hidden things that are deep inside our hearts that we walked in with today, that you would take note of all of those and minister to all that needs to be ministered to today. Would you do that, Holy Spirit? Would you take your word and make it effective? Would you build up and strengthen, encourage, convict? cause us to run in the power of the gospel today and may you be glorified we pray in Jesus name